If our hearts are controlled by a lust for power and the preservation of our own security, Jesus threatens our status quo and we often react with hostility. Remember the murderer Herod in the traditional Christmas story? He illustrates the violent response some individuals have to Jesus. Here is a part of the story of Jesus' birth seldom included in our Christmas pageants. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2 with our study leader, Dave Wurtson. Maybe you're young and you're very ideal and you go out into the world and you think that everyone tells the truth and you think that people are looking out for the best interest of others, not just themselves. And then all of a sudden, in the marketplace, you get exposed to cunning and someone that, that speaks out of both sides of their mouth. In other words, maybe it's a business person that gives you this big testimony about how they love Jesus and how they worship Jesus, and you think that you're going to work for this big-shot believer, and then you get to work for them, and you find out that they cheat and they lie and they are just really in it just for themselves, that can be disillusioning. And that's where it's so important to get out of religion and into the Word of God. Because the more that you'll study God's Word, the more realistic about life you'll become, but you'll also not become cynical because you'll realize that the Word of God testifies that, that though that there are very cruel, violent, cunning, deceitful individuals, in the end, God will have the last word. Right at the beginning of the life of Christ, and those of you that have been with us for the last several weeks know that we began a study in the life of Christ, and we studied about the announcement of his birth to Mary. We shared together about the trip that Mary and Joseph made to Bethlehem. We saw the shepherds come and praise him and honor him and go out throughout that countryside praising God and telling others about the birth of the Savior. And we shared about the circumcision of Christ and then his dedication 33 days after that in which Simeon and Anna, two faithful witnesses, came. And we knew that we can believe that Jesus is the Messiah because Anna and Simeon told the truth. Now another story that doesn't get lost in the shuffle, but it's another one of those stories in the Bible that we often kind of scrunch together. And how many of you have ever seen a Christmas pageant where you had the shepherds standing there, you had Mary and Joseph and the baby, and the baby's lying there in the manger, and then in this Christmas pageant, the wise men come in. How many of you have ever seen that? In other words, everyone knows that a good Christmas pageant has the Mary and Joseph and the baby, the shepherds, and the wise men. They all come at once. Well, that's another one of those things that 2,000 years has kind of scrunched everything together because the reality of the matter is that the wise men probably came when Jesus might have even been toddling. He might have even been walking. It might have, he might have been as old as two years because remember in the story that Herod slew all the babies in Bethlehem, all the male babies two years old and under. Now, he was probably trying to cover all the bases because he was that kind of an individual. So I don't know exactly when the wise men came, but it probably was not the night that Jesus was born like the shepherds came. But that detail, you know, and that mistake that is often made isn't that crucial. A mistake that is made that is crucial is that many of us fail to see the insight into human nature 
and the exposure of human hearts that took place even when Jesus was a baby. You see, the idea that I want to get across to you is we study a contrast in two individuals. One a group, a group of wise men, and another a king. And what the text is telling us is that there's two responses to Jesus, even as a baby. Either you murder him, and all the hate and all the violence and all the anger that can be a part of all of our lives, and it is a part of all of our lives at one time or another, flashes into reality and we seek to murder the Son of Glory. Or else we're like the wise men and we go to great lengths in order to worship Him. Two groups of people, one murderers and one wise men. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. In the Gospels, as it unfolds, you either weep and you worship and you praise God for what the Savior has done and you allow him to expose the truth of your life or else you join with the crowd and you yell, crucify him. And what I want you to see is that these themes that we're going to be tracing through the entire life of Christ are evident even when this precious Savior was just a little helpless baby. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 introduces us to these two figures, Herod, who from the world standpoint was called Herod the Great, and a group of anonymous wise men. We don't even know how many there were. It's been surmised in church history that there were three because they brought three gifts, but that's just a deduction based upon how many gifts there were. There are some things that as we go through this chapter that we'll be able to nail down for sure. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2 and verses. We'll begin with verse 1. But before we do that, let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Father, I pray that you would help us as we look at Matthew 2 to understand what your Holy Spirit was trying to teach us about the reality of Jesus. And I pray that it would transcend the centuries and that it would invade our heart. Father, I know that there's some Herod in me. There's also, by the gift of your Spirit, some wisdom. And I would ask you, Lord, that you would help all of us to be an honest people today, from the smallest child to the oldest adult. I pray that we would open our hearts to receive what this chapter wants to teach us about the reality of your gracious gift and yet the cruel violence and the hatred of the human heart as well as the worship of the human heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, so we get a little bit of a chron chronological flavor here. We know it's in the place Bethlehem. Very possibly Joseph had some relatives in Bethlehem because that was uh, his town of birth. And even though he'd moved to Nazareth, which we know from the book of Luke, he probably had some relatives. And while baby Jesus was developing and growing, he probably set up housekeeping in Bethlehem. Maybe even thought that this would be the appropriate place for the Messiah to be raised. In Bethlehem, the city of David, right near the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. So it was in that time, so you want to picture a young household, the baby is just beginning to grow, and it was during the time of King Herod. Now King Herod was called King Herod the Great because there's not a place in Israel today that you can go that you will not see evidence of King Herod. If you go to the Wailing Walls, 
you look at the bottom of the Wailing Wall and there's gigantic stones. That's King Solomon's stone. As you move up a little bit higher, you can see built on these massive gigantic stone is some very fine, not quite as massive as Solomon's stone, but some very fine masonry. And it goes up for several feet, 30, 40 feet. That's Herodian stone. You go down to the city of Hebron. There's a beautiful mosque where Abraham is buried underneath this large sarcophagus-like. And as you look at the mosque, you look at the wall, and you see the identical stone that you have in the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. You go over to the city of Caesarea, right in the Mediterranean Sea, one of the most beautiful spots that I think Mary and I have ever visited. You can sit in an amphitheater, and you, it still has marvelous acoustics. In fact, you can just whisper to a group that you might be taking on a tour and a hundred people can hear you sitting way up. Unbelievable acoustics. Herod built the city of Caesarea. In fact, even the city of Athens invited Herod the Great to lend his expertise to some building projects. Herod was a great builder and he's left his mark even today, it's evidence. Herod also, and during a terrible time of famine, during about the 30s, there was a terrible famine in the land of Israel a few years before Jesus was born. And the crops failed. And the people were hungry for bread. They ran out of clothing. And Herod, out of his own treasury, sent down to Egypt and had shiploads of grain and food brought in. And he made sure that all the people realized that he was the great benefactor. He sent out some of his, the rest of his, some other portions of his, of his treasure, brought in some materials so the people would have clothes. And he made, went out of his way to be benevolent during that time of crisis with the underscore, this was done by your benefactor, Herod. So Herod was known as the great because he was a great administrator. He was a great builder. He was also a cunning Machiavellian politician. No one could match Herod in being able to play both ends against the middle. When Mark Antony and Cleopatra were rising up against Octavius, against Caesar Augustus, and who knew who would win? Mark Antony was a good friend of Herod the Great, and Herod supported Cleopatra and Antony. At the Battle of Actium, Cleopatra and Antony were defeated. If you read Shakespeare, you can read all about his conception of that many years later. You remember how Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide together? And Herod was in a pickle because he had supported the wrong group. And Augustus had won the great victory. And now nobody opposed Augustus and Herod's life was even in danger. What do you do? He made a trip to Rome. He came into the royal court. He came before Augustus and he said this, Augustus, I admit, I supported Antony. I supported Cleopatra, your mortal enemies. But what my loyalty to your enemies proves is that I'm a loyal friend. I'm a loyal supporter. I am a loyal ally. And I pledge to you that just as I was loyal to Mark Antony, I will be loyal to you, Augustus. And he was a cunning speaker. He was a brilliant orator, and Augustus believed him. So instead of having his head chopped off, he went back to the land of Israel as the king of all of that precious kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. In fact, the whole kingdom 
was united. He ruled from Lebanon and Syria all the way down into Edom in the south, all the way down to Egypt. He was great from the world's standpoint. He was sitting in Jerusalem ruling. He had, striv he had strove as a young man in his 30s to get to this position of a king. He had used every trick, every murderous violence you can imagine to come to power. And now he's sitting as the king with the title, the king of Israel. That's the setting that Luke, that Matthew introduces here in this introductory verse. He tells us that when Herod was ruling the city of Jerusalem, there were magi or wise men that came from the east and they came to Jerusalem. We really don't know exactly which eastern country they came from. We can make some guesses. Arabia is a good guess because myrrh was taken from the sap of a tree that we know grows in Saudi Arabia. And so very possibly they came from the land of Arabia. Also the word magi, we go back to the Old Testament and look at the way that that word is used. It's all of you remember there was a famous wise man in the Old Testament, Daniel. Remember Daniel was taken captive in 605 BC, he went to live in Babylon. And some have conjectured down through the church history, we'll have to wait and ask Daniel when we get to heaven. Possibly Daniel's witness for many generations, all the way through the Babylonian Empire into the Persian Empire, Daniel is one of the wise men of Babylon, one of the magi of Babylon, bore a testimony for God. Maybe he left his mark and for four, over 400 years, that tradition was passed down, a Messiah is coming. The promised one from God is coming. And maybe these wise men are Babylonians who follow that tradition that Daniel laid down for them and made the trip when Jesus was born. I don't know. I know they came from the east and I know they were Gentiles. And the great contrast in this story is that those that you would not expect, the pagan, the Gentile, they're coming to worship. They're perceptive to the signs of God. The Jewish people, for the most part, are asleep. And Herod, who's ruling as king of, the, of Israel, not a Jew himself, but marrying into the Hasmonean line, which was the ruling line from the Maccabean period, trying to fake his kingdom, he, instead of wanting to worship, is going to have a diabolical plan. I don't know where the wise men came. You can take your guess. And if the Lord Jesus comes back today, maybe you'll meet the wise men. You can ask them. But they come to Jerusalem. That would be the logical place to come if you were looking for the king of Israel because Jerusalem was the capital. And they asked this question, where is the one who's born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And that raises another mystery in this chapter that I don't have the answer to, that I know you'd all like to have the answer. What was the star? The idea is not that it rose in the east. If it rose in the east, they would have gone to China instead of to Israel. Uh, Jonathan or Joel was asking me about that when we were studying the Christmas story around Christmas. The idea is that they were in the east when they saw this star arise. What was it? All kinds of guesses have been made. Kepler, back in the 1600s, guessed that it was the union of Jupiter and Saturn, about 7 BC. Those planets aligned themselves in the fish uh, constellation of Pisces, and they would have been a very brilliant, sharp image for a time during that fish constellation. Some people have argued that, that it could have been that. 
Kepler himself, who was an astronomer, favored that it was a supernova, one of those stars that suddenly bursts and explodes and emanates a brilliant light for a period of weeks or months and then disappears. Might have been that. Uh, Dr. Pentecost, when I was at seminary, used to tell us it wasn't any of those things. It was the Shekinah glory of God. And just as the children of Israel were led in the wilderness by the pillar of fire by night, that this is the same presence of God, the Shekinah glory shining. I don't know. Uh, I have a little bit of trouble seeing the Greek word star equal the Shekinah glory, but who knows. I also checked it out last night. It's a little bit hard to see the stars around Midlothian now because of the Mazda plane and all the lights, but I checked it out, and it is possible, especially early in the morning. I checked it out late last night, and I checked it out early this morning, especially in the morning, like when Venus comes up or one of the really bright planets you can line it up on a house. It's very possible that it could come and you could look over the horizon and you could look from Jerusalem, which it's about five miles down to Bethlehem, and possibly you could sight a very bright heavenly luminary and it could give you some orientation over the house. I don't know what it was, but I do know that it was a sign to these wise men and they were perceptive. I also know that in the ancient world, there was a lot of traditions about when great kings were born. There were heavenly phenomenons that welcomed their birth. For example, when Alexander the Great was born, many of the astronomers talked about a sun in the heavens, a star that represented the birth of this great world conqueror. I believe that we always have those kinds of unions in the ancient world because you always have a dual story going on. In reality, you have God writing his story and you have Satan trying to counterfeit God's story. So you always have this thing going back and forth. So I don't know for sure what the star was, but I do know that it guided the wise men to Jerusalem. And they came to the city and they come to the right place and they've come with the right purpose. So who is the identity of the wise men? They're wise men from the east, Gentiles, possibly in the line of Daniel. Where did they come from? We don't know for sure, but we know what they came to do. We know what their purpose was, and I hope it's your purpose. I hope it's my purpose. They came to worship him. They came to worship him. Now, that word worship is used in the scriptures, sometimes just of giving obeyance to somebody, like giving honor, like at an inauguration that many of you have watched. We bestowed honor, and many people bestowed respect upon our new president. And the word can be used like that. But the majority of times, the vast majority of times that this word is used in the New Testament, in fact, every use of Matthew focuses on Jesus or God. In fact, there's some very interesting cases in the scripture. For example, when Peter goes into the household of Cornelius, Cornelius bows down and worships him or gives him obeyance. And Peter says, get up off your feet. I'm just a man like you. I'm just a messenger of God. Worship God. Worship the Lord Jesus. When John the Apostle, the ancient apostle in the book of Revelation, falls down before an angelic heavenly visitor who's giving a revelation to him, the angel says, John, arise, because I'm just like yourself, and worship the lamb that was shed for you. But I want you to notice something as we go through this chapter. We're going to end with the wise men face down, kneeling before a little baby. And no voice from heaven 
where no admonition is given to get up. Whether the wise men understood it or not, they worshiped far better than maybe they even knew as they bowed before the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The wise men came from the east, all that effort following the sign from God for the most important purpose. It's the purpose for which we were created. And that's what we need to be doing this morning, worshiping, honoring, giving praise, giving thanks to him. Verse 3 introduces the conflict and the drama. We have the wise man's intent to come and worship. Now we have King Herod brought into the picture again. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod hadn't worked to become the king of the Jews for nothing. He was threatened, and Herod was near the end of his life. And if you think Herod wasn't a threatened individual, he slew his beloved wife, Miriam. Then he slew two of his, at least two of his children. Augustus Caesar said it was better to be Herod's hus, his pig, than his weos, meaning his son. Because you had a much better shot at living if you were his pig than if you were his son. He was such a jealous individual, and there were so many palace intrigues. And so Matthew's account is very accurate historically. Herod would be disturbed at thinking there was another usurper to his throne. But how is he going to act this out? Look what he does. When he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where is Christ to be born? So he gathers together all the PhDs in theology and scripture, and they come walking into his home and his palace, and right away they know where the Messiah will be born, in Bethlehem and Judea. For this is what the prophet has written in Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You know, you're going to choose to have two rulers, one of two rulers in your life. And I trust with all my heart that you'll choose to have the ruler who's the shepherd. All the way through Scripture, the rulers are presented under two dominant symbols. One is the symbol of a shepherd. And it has all the imagery of a good shepherd. Because remember that the one that Micah 5.2 predicted would come, one day identified himself, I am the good shepherd. The one that was born in the city of Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread, one day said, I am the bread of life. And right here in the early story of the birth of Jesus, and when he's just a small child, the Holy Spirit's already reaching out to us and saying, Jesus wants to shepherd you. Jesus wants to guide you. Jesus wants to nestle you. He wants to take care of you. And you will either submit to that ruler and allow him to be your good shepherd, or else you'll be dominated by another ruler who in the scripture is presented as a beast. Remember the book of Daniel and how Nebuchadnezzar is represented as a vicious beast. And you have four beasts coming up out of the sea, out of the chaos of the nations. Another symbol or another rubric for leadership in the scriptures is the beast, Nimrod. Way in the book of Genesis chapter 10, it's called the mighty hunter before the Lord. You see, we're either going to let someone who's a shepherd 
who has our best interests at heart, that cares for us dominate our lives, and we're going to worship them, or we're going to be dominated by a beast. Those are the only choices you have. Because there's only two ultimate rulers in all the universe, and you're not one of them, and I'm not one of them. You're either dominated by the King of Kings, the Son of God, who is worthy of adoration and praise, or you're dominated by the beast, the evil one, the dragon. Herod was dominated by the dragon. And out of the deepest recess of his heart flowed out jealousy and intimidation and anger and murder. But look how he fakes it. You never know it. If you were one of the wise men, these were wise men that came from the east, and it took a revelation of God for them to see into Herod's cunning. Look what it says. Herod then calls the Magi, in verse 7, secretly. doesn't want to raise any more of a stir in Jerusalem than there already was. And he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Why do you think he didn't ask, when do you think the baby was born? You see, by determining when the star appeared, he's cunning. He can put two and two together and figure out, well, if the star appeared a couple years ago, then the child was probably born. Or if the star appeared a year ago, the child was probably born. I would guess more in that range because then he would go on both sides of that figure and be sure he covered everything when he killed the babies. Very cunning. He could ascertain the age without in any way alarming the wise men. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you have found him, please report it to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Doesn't that touch your heart? I mean, I could just say, this would make a tremendous dramatic presentation. I mean, Herod would be a great part. I mean, I'm sure he laid it on. Man, it was like butter on hot bread. Lays it on. The wise men didn't even see through it. And I want every one of you to realize, you know, one of the things that discourages a lot of you is that as you live the Christian life and you're rubbing shoulders with people that give themselves the name of believers or Christian, suddenly you find out, man, this guy was supposed to be a Christian. He used all the right language, said all the right things, and then he totally wiped me out. And you say, oh, maybe this Christianity stuff doesn't work. When are you going to wake up? God's word knows what real life is about. Businessmen and women, God knows all about what it's like in the cunning, intriguing world of business. Herod could walk into Wall Street, downtown Dallas. He could go to London. Herod could go anywhere, and he'd go right to the top. He knew how to lay it on. He knew how to call people in and, man, just butter them up just right. God isn't deceived by any of that. You see, God doesn't buy just what someone says with their mouth. Herod said all the right things. Herod would come to our church and he would go, oh, isn't it great to worship Jesus? But the reality of his life would be, you get in my way. You challenge me. You threaten my position. You try to come up the ladder quicker than I do, and I'll cut you off. Every one of you in this room are going to be one of those two people. In fact, to be honest with you, we go back and forth between the two. And that's why some of you, you know, you start getting close to people 
and suddenly you see the Herodian principle in our hearts. And you see someone lie or be deceitful or have just a violent, angry attitude. And you go, ah, you know, maybe this isn't true. doesn't mean the text isn't true. It doesn't mean Jesus isn't true. It means that we all need to open our hearts up because this scripture is like an incisive razor. As I look at this audience, the truth of the matter is there's some Herods out here. There's a little bit of Herod in every one of you. And it's in me. And you need to be honest about it. You need to allow this baby that became a man that died for you to do radical surgery in your life. You need to let this text show you the depths of what human nature can be. You see, we're so naive. We read this text and go, how in the world could anybody ever do that? I would never do that to the baby Jesus. Oh, yeah? The world today has come so far. Oh, yes. Come on. Tell me about it. There's been more violent murders in the 20th century. We have, we have killed the equivalent of an entire nation just in the 20th century. Over 200 million people have died in conflicts just in the 20th century. You live with this Herod every day, some of you. You're exposed to this kind of behavior. And it's in our hearts. And grace says, come to me. Expose the reality of what's going on. Your lips aren't enough. You can say the right thing with your mouth. You can say the right words. Jesus says, I want to know what your heart is. Who are you worshiping in your heart? And Herod was worshiping himself. He was out for himself. He was using all of his cunning. But I want you to see that when you live like that, who you're really doing conflict with. The story goes on, verse 9. After they had heard the king... They went on their way, and the star that they, they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped at the place where the child was. So God supernaturally located the very place where Jesus was staying. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed, and on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and they worshipped them. Is that what it says? Very important, down through the centuries, Christendom has been very much divided. We are here today to worship him. You want to have an intermediate between you and God the Father? You only need one, the man Christ Jesus. You don't need to pray. You need to honor his mother, his earthly mother Mary. As we go through the study of his life, we'll find out she was a precious woman. But she was a woman, a human being just like ourselves. It had to go through the same process that we have to do to go to our knees before the Son. Any idea that you need to go to the mother to reach the Son is totally unscriptural. The wise men bowed down and there was just the baby. He was just an infant. But they didn't bow down and worship the mother and the child. They didn't worship the Madonna and her son. They worshiped the Son because he alone is God and worthy of that kind of acclaim. It just shows you how just a small preposition can communicate so much truth and so much reality that we need to be sure that we follow in our lives. Then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. A lot of speculation has been made about the meaning of the gifts. Origen said that the gold represented his kingdom. The myrrh stood 
for his death and his burial and frankincense spoke of his humanity. I think you can trace some of that through. Gold is often used in scripture, the symbol of a kingdom, and truly they were appropriate gifts. And I think that God is a fantastic writer, only he writes in real life, and I'm sure that God the Father ultimately probably had something like that in mind when he led these three, these men, we don't know there were three, it's so easy to fall into that, to bring those gifts. I don't know exactly what the meaning of those gifts were, but I know that they brought them, and I know they brought them to the right person. And I, the thing that struck me in studying this text this week is what are we going to bring? What can we bring to Jesus? And once again, I'm reminded of Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, I want your body. I want you to present your body as a gift to me because I've bought it. And really, in a lot of ways, it's not a gift, but it's our reasonable service. But I think of other gifts we can bring. We can bring our service. We've been studying the book of Revelation, and there's some haunting words about the church of Sardis. Your works are not yet complete in my sight. You have a name. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You haven't completed your work. I think what the Holy Spirit is saying to all of us, our works are not complete. There's work to be done. Jesus Christ still wants to move through our midst and enable us to give gifts, to give gifts materially. But I think as Americans, probably one of the easiest gifts for us to bring is our material gifts. What I think often what the Holy Spirit wants is our personal gifts of our life. I believe that the teaching of God's word and the fleshing out of Jesus Christ in our life will cause us to bring gifts. And please, brothers and sisters, don't ever let those gifts turn into obligation because that's what will hurt you. That's what will burn you out. Bring your life as a gift to the Savior. As I speak today, if I do it under obligation, then it becomes a dragger. It becomes something that, that burns guys out. And that's why a lot of pastors, after about 15 years in the ministry, they've had it. Because it wasn't a gift. It wasn't the rejoicing in the flow of grace in their life. They weren't bringing gifts. They were trying to meet an obligation. Don't ever serve the Lord like that. Always be like the wise men. You come from afar because you want to worship. And you want to worship the Savior and when you worship your Savior and you're down on your knees, the gifts are just naturally laid at his feet. The neat thing about that is when you give gifts to the Savior, you always end up getting more back than you ever bargained for because he's so kind and gentle as a shepherd. I can't ever speak about the wise men without thinking of one of my dad's famous sermons, which he says, wise men still come to Jesus. My dad's final point is, they departed another way. Whenever you come to Jesus, you depart another way. The wise men came not knowing the Messiah. They came with the right purpose, and they met the Savior, and you depart another way. It turns your life around. It changes your life. But it didn't change Herod's life. Herod realized he was faked out by the wise men. Herod realized that they had seen into his plan. I don't think he knew that God warned him. Because that's the big miscalculation that Herod made 
he forgot that he wasn't just dealing with Mary and Joseph, the little baby. He wasn't just dealing with the wise men. He was dealing with the ultimate Lord Sovereign of all the universe. And an angel not only appeared to the wise men, but he appeared to Mary and Joseph. And he warned Joseph to take the baby Jesus down into Egypt. And so, like Israelites head down through the centuries, Mary and Joseph fled to the south, like Jeremiah did when the Babylonians attacked, like Jacob did when there was a famine in the land to go down to be with Joseph, reenacting what had been done century after century. Joseph took a young family, made the 75-mile hike down to Jerusalem. Herod died. The text tells us just the simple words, and Herod died. Josephus talks about the tragedy of his death. But before he died, it was like he had a final seal of cruelty, and he ordered the slaying of all the baby boys, two years old and under. I don't think we should think of thousands of babies dying. You know, as church history developed, sometimes there was given the impression that hundreds upon thousands of babies died. Bethlehem was just a small town, a very small town. Maybe 15, 12, 20 babies were killed. But it's too many. Way too many. Roe versus Wade was introduced. And since 1973, millions upon millions of little babies made in the image of God have been massacred, have been killed. It's a very delicate debate, but as a biblicist, it's a very moral and ethical issue because our Bible tells us that in the womb, a little baby is knit together. It's not just the product of chance. It's not just probabilities. It's not just evolutionary forces at work. Psalm 139 pictures symbolically the hands of God knitting a little infant together. And oh, how we need to pray for life. But we need to realize that the reason the murder goes on is because these two forces are at work in the world. The forces of Herod, the forces of the dragon, the forces of evil, and the forces of life. Satan always hates little babies. And I want every one of you to guard yourselves. I want every one of you to guard yourselves against those spirits. It's a spirit of selfishness. It is a spirit of materialism. It is a spirit of wanting my own way. Little babies demand unselfish giving. And yet, they give us the gift of life. When I hear one of our church family unexpectedly finds out that they're pregnant, how do we react? How do we react? You know, I love this church family because the dominant reaction is joy. But there's a breath in our culture that can breathe so quickly into your life. Oh, think of what it'll cost. When Joshua and Janae came, Joel was already, you know, six, seven years old. We were already out of all those diapers, already out of, you know, all that paraphernalia. Ah, man. That's where life is. That means I can still be playing basketball when I'm in my 50s. That is where we find life. Please. Don't ever drink from the well of materialism. It's worth it 
to bring those babies into the world because the Savior, the ultimate baby, has already come. And nothing can separate you from that love. The reason a lot of girls are having abortions is because they haven't heard that message. See, the ultimate answer to the problem of abortion is not legislation. It's proclaiming the gift of life that's found in Jesus. Because a lot of people don't have that life, so there's no reason to live. So they're just bringing in one meaningless life after another because that's all that they see. And we have the answer that says, no, it's not meaningless. There's a shepherd that can come into life and can remove the murder, can remove the hate, and give the gift of life. Herod murdered the babies. It was one of his last acts. And then he went down to the city of Massad, and he died a tragic death. Josephus says his whole body rotted out. When he dies, the angel appears again, and Mary and Joseph come up out of Egypt. They came up to Nazareth. Instead of moving back to Bethlehem, they moved up to Nazareth. And the text ends with, Thus is fulfilled, he shall be called, called a Nazarene. I want to close with this. This is what we've been talking about. Herod, the secular Machiavellian ruler, a humble little couple with a young baby. What are the odds? Who are you going to live for? Who are you going to follow? Herod with his mighty buildings, cunning intrigues in the court of Augustus, trying to snuff out the life of a little baby. But behind this entire chapter is the ultimate king. And he's behind every chapter in your life. And that king is writing the ultimate story. And in Matthew's viewpoint, Herod is just a pawn in the hands of the Almighty God that is being used to fulfill the prophecy. He needed to be born in Bethlehem. He needed to go down into Egypt so he could reenact the true story of Israel, the true son of Israel, instead of the prodigal of Hosea 11. He needed to ultimately end up in Nazareth because he was supposed to be a despised servant, a servant that grew up on the other side of the tracks. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 53, all spell out that imagery of the despised other side of the track Messiah. And God used Archelaus and Herod the Great and all these pawns to bring about his will. So what choice will you make this day? Will you bow down and worship him? Or are you going to be Herodian, controlled by anger and deceitfulness and cunning and hate? Those are the only choices. You worship or you're Herod. Father, I just ask you that you would use your word to help us to all come to the Lord Jesus who has now become the exalted Son of God at the right hand of God the Father. And I would pray that you would help us to allow him to expose how easily we can be threatened and how it can generate terrible passions of hatred and wanting to hurt somebody. Just because Herod acted out those emotions physically I pray that you would help us not to excuse ourselves because sometimes we just do it mentally Father help us to realize that Jesus said if we have anger in our heart we've already murdered somebody and I would pray that that, that stark confrontational reality would cause us to come running to the Savior and plead for his forgiveness and his love 
and the gift of a new life. Father, I pray that like the wise men, that our purpose would be to see the signs that you put in your word and through natural revelation and help us to come and get down on our knees and worship the Savior. Lord, use Matthew 2 to change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.